Hello and welcome to Behind the Bearcat. This is the podcast where the Northwest Missouri State University Career Services Office chats with Northwest faculty, staff, alumni, students, and friends to hear about their career journey, how they got to where they are, and how they became Bearcats. I'm Northwest Career Services Internship Coordinator Travis Klein. And I'm Hannah Christian, the Assistant Director of Career Services. And today we are joined by Rick Toomey, who is an Associate Professor of Chemistry in the Northwest Department of Natural Sciences. Welcome. Hello. Good to be here. <laughs> chemistry Professor. So my very first question for you is, did you always want, did you always like chemistry? Like as a kid, like, did you always want to be in the chemistry field? No. No. no, I wanted to be an architect. <laughs> and uh, I was I was really focused on being an architect until I got to high school. And then um, I took chemistry, which I was terrified to do. All my friends took chemistry as sophomores, and I was not a good student in high school. And uh, I took chemistry in my junior year and just figured it out. It just came to me. And I did really well and... The next year I took physics and I did really well and it was the first time that I did really well in anything in high school. And so I just decided, you know. Hey, I it, found my yeah, groove. Yeah. It comes easy to you, then maybe that's the thing. So what was your first job? This. Really? Really. Well, like, like, let's back up. Like, first job ever uh, in life. Oh. <laughs> you got paid for it. <laughs> yeah. Oh. That your parent, not, not hired by your parents and you had to get paid for it. Uh, working the electrical department at a hardware store like Home Depot. Like a retail? Like yeah. Like a sales associate in the... Yeah, in the on the floor, stocking, selling. An yep. electrical department? Yep. Did you want to be in the electrical, or did you just show up and get the job and they... I was a high school senior and I understood physics, so they oh. put me in the electrical department. Yeah. Did, what did you learn there? Like, what was the, what did you pick up in the electrical department that you could take forward with you? You know, you could actually explain how the relationship between voltage and current and power, and you could talk to people about how to put switches in and, you know, one pole, two pole. And it was, it was useful because instead of just saying what you're looking for is on the shelf, you could actually have a conversation with them. How long did you work there? Uh, junior, senior year of high school and freshman year of college. So you were doing that at the same time as you were like finding the chemistry yeah. physics thing. Yeah. Okay, so you you get your groove there. Mm -hmm. I can see where you could get in that. So then you decided, did you declare that as a major when you went to college? No, I actually went to pharmacy school, oh. thinking I was going to be a pharmacist. Somebody I knew was a pharmacist, and they encouraged it, and I went and visited the school, and it was small. I went to the largest high school east of the Mississippi, so there were more kids in my high school than there are students in Northwest. Where, where was that? Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. And... Um, the, the, the contrast of going to a school with only 500 total students was really attractive. So I switched to pharmacy and decided I was going to do that and did that for about a year. And then I realized that uh, I don't want to be a pharmacist. <laughs> you just get exposure to it enough that you realize, you know, that's not my career. So I just switched majors while I was there and became a chemist. So what school was that? What Massachusetts College, College of so, Pharmacy. Okay, I got you. And you could, so you could become a chemist there? Yeah, they, they had chemistry degrees just like they had pharmacy, pharmacy degrees. Degree? They seem like they're probably yeah. pretty similar fields. It's Actually, for the first two years of education, they're almost Pretty much love. chemistry, yeah. yeah. What was the best part about coursework or the experience that you gained? In college? Uh-huh. Probably the small class size. Which was how many? 
usually, I, I think my largest class was 50. With only 500 kids in the school, you end up having a really good student-to-teacher ratio. Mm-hmm. What was your average like high school class size, you think? Yeah, you didn't have classes over 20 because there were so many classrooms. Right. That is, that's very interesting. I never actually thought about high school being that big, I guess. Like, coming from the rural Midwest, yeah. that's, like, mind-blowing to me. Yeah, how many people were in your graduating <laughs> class, for the record, Hannah? Uh, I had 88, I think. I had 30 in mine. We started with 36, and 30 made it. So, <laughs> Moving so. to the Midwest was stressful. Uh, yeah, I imagine that's a completely different experience than yours was. So, yeah, that's... Yeah, a lot of really really myopic views that we had in the coast of what the Midwest was like. And mm-hmm. I got here. It was, wow. I, there was a grad student at, at when I went to school and he was from Missouri and he said to me, you're going to work in Missouri. And I said, yeah, I took the job. And he said, that's great. My family all, we, we, we grew up in Columbia and we would buy a cow and sell it to the um, athletic department at MU. And I'm just, you bought a cow? <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea what he was talking about. People buy cows? And, yeah. <laughs> they also buy half cows. Yeah, see, I, that's still pretty foreign to me. Yeah. All right, so you're a student, and in, in you decide to switch to chemistry. Mm-hmm. Then how did you get into teaching? I had an advisor as an undergraduate, and he saw something in me that I didn't see. And so he asked me as a sophomore if I would be a teaching assistant for the laboratories. And then in my junior year, he said, I would like you to teach the one-hour class each week before the students go into lab. And so I would stand up and teach a class of about 75 students. And then um, in my senior year, he just said, I really think you should consider chemistry education. So I graduated with my bachelor's in chemistry, and then I stayed at that institution and earned a master's in chemistry education with him. And he taught me everything I know. How did did it feel right when you were teaching? Did it did it come naturally to you, yeah. or did it take a little time? No, get just it just I just knew what I was doing. You know, sometimes it's it's easy to just ask the question in five different ways, and one of those ways is going to work for the students. So I started with tutoring, and then started with uh, the teaching assistant, and eventually it just became second nature. That's another key point I think to bring out there. It's often when you're in college, it's often the people who see your work in class. I know I had a professor who hired me for a couple different jobs because they saw the work that I did in the academic work that I had done and knew that I would be a good candidate for tutoring. I mean, I tutored. I was an SI leader. So that led into then you get the job. Then you got jobs other places because you already had that kind of first job that showed that you could do a good good work for someone. Yeah, and we have a surprising number of faculty have said, I had a, f- a faculty member who said, you should do this, yeah. and kind of took them under the wing. That's, I wouldn't think about being a professor, being that kind of, you recognize someone and then you, you help them do it. That's, it's really interesting that we've heard that from multiple people in different disciplines even too, so. I never would have thought I would have chosen this career. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we hear that a lot, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think there are very many people who start college with the, I'm going to work for a college when I graduate. You know, that's just, usually you don't even think that there are jobs at a college. Of course there are, but you don't think about that. (laughs) Okay, so then the job hunt, so you're in college, you're kind of working your way through teaching labs, being a TA, teaching a class, and then it comes time to do a job search. How did you approach that? The job search didn't start until I was almost to the end of my PhD. So I didn't 
you know, like everybody else, you just keep going to school and trying not to think about actually having to be an adult. But eventually you get to the point where, you know, in chemistry, it's about a five-year PhD. So after four years, you know, if you have a good PhD advisor, they want you out. And so he said to me, you need to start looking to the future. And it was like, oh, okay. So you just go to the journals and you look for the listings and start applying and hope that you get responses. And Just like in every other career field, I suppose, yeah. right? What is your actual PhD, like what is your title or your degree? Is it science edu- or chemistry education? Or is My it master's in, is, is in chemistry education. My PhD is in physical chemistry. Physical chemistry. Yeah. Okay. Could you explain to me what physical chemistry is? PCHEM is the study of how matter and energy interact. And so the first semester of my major's course is the interaction of matter and energy on the scale of atoms and molecules. And then the second semester is energy and matter on the larger macroscopic scale. So it's quantum mechanics and then thermodynamics. So that's your physics and right back to high school, right? Your physics and your chemistry kind of combined, right? How many places did you apply when you were looking for teaching jobs? I applied to, I think, six. One of them was literally down the street from where I grew up, and it was the school that most of the kids I went to high school with attended, and they didn't even give me a look. I never got a call back or anything. And uh, then I applied to every other school was either in Georgia or in the Midwest. There were no schools that, because you don't get this job unless somebody dies or retires especially at a school the size of Northwest where you really only need one person who does this. So if somebody's in the job, they're in it for their career. And uh, I applied to several schools in the Midwest, and it actually turned out that I didn't hear anything until March of the year I should have been leaving to go for a job. And uh, Northwest called, and they said, we'd like to fly you out here. And I said, great. So I flew out, and I got home from the interview and I was home for about an hour and a school in Iowa called and they said, we'd like to fly you out. (laughs) So I said, okay, but I really have a short window because I have an offer and they said, okay, we'll fly you out. So the next day I got on a plane and And flew back to Iowa Iowa, (laughs) and I got home and the next morning I got a call from a school in Indiana and they said, we'd like to fly (laughs) you out. So in the span of a week, I traveled to the Midwest three times and um, decided this was the job. Of course, my mother said to me, well, you know, you should just call MIT and tell them you've got your degree and you really want to teach there and I'm sure they have positions and it'll be fine. And it's like, that's yes, not Ma. how it works. You know? <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit about, I don't think we've actually talked about this on the podcast, but what it's like to interview for a faculty position? I don't think it's the same as like, I'm going to walk in and interview for the retail position at Lowe's or whatever. Could you kind of walk us through what it's like to be interviewed as a faculty member? You essentially have to go into that institution, meet with all the faculty individually, which makes sense, and then you basically get thrust into one of their classrooms with their students, and they say, we you know, give you a week's notice, we'd like you to teach this topic. So you walk in and meet their students and shake their hands and then stand in front of them and try to wow them, which is really unnerving. Because you know they've seen half a dozen people before you get there, and they may see another half dozen, so you're just another number. And so you have to do something to make them think, wow, this person's good. Because you don't really worry what the other people think. You worry what the students think. Because if the students think you're effective, 
There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so what did you do for yours? Did you try and do like an experiment to wow them or did you just do like no, a normal class? And, and I think I think the experiment route is the bad route because anybody can go in and have smoke and mirrors. and f- But if you can go in and you can look at somebody and using only words and a chalkboard can make them understand something really deep in their field in a way that nobody else has explained to them and show them that you care and that, you know, do you, do you understand? I'm not lecturing. I'm engaging you in a conversation and leave them with that feeling of, wow, that really worked. That to me is the more effective way to go. I would, that makes way more sense to me than to do like the, what is it? Like elephant toothpaste where it's, yes. you, know, you have the big reaction. And <laughs> exactly. They do that for the freshmen when they come in. And right. That and makes sense. Wow. But. And that's, that's great. But at the end of the day, you know, like I said to my students, it's great the first week, but start the second week, you're in the grind. And you really need somebody who can look at you and talk to you and make you understand things when you don't want to learn. So any tips on if if I have someone who maybe is listening and is preparing to go into a teaching sort of situation interview, like how to think that through, how to prepare that? That's tough. Because I think it's born of your experiences. You know, if it was as simple as you should do this, then everybody would teach. You know, it, it really, it's, it's so internal that it's really hard to say to somebody, you get on the bike and you pedal and somebody gets on the bike and they pedal and they learn how to ride a bike. But just because I stand up in front of a classroom, if somebody watches me, doesn't mean they can then take my place and then have a conversation with my students and actually be effective. So I don't know. I don't know how, what advice I would give to somebody. Other than be yourself, right? If you've gotten yeah. to that position and you're interviewing for a teaching spot. Hopefully you can't fake it. Yeah. Yeah, I would think knowledge and practice are probably the two. You need to know your stuff and you need to to have practice and be comfortable with the whole process. Agreed. So talk to me about the culture shock of coming to the Midwest, coming to Northwest from the East coast. Surely you have some good stories about that. I do, but it's so, it's so, we're so close minded. We're just, I, I asked somebody if I could get Nike sneakers here you know i was like can i get brand name sneakers there because you know, we have this view of like back to the future you know and the crazy thing is you get to maryville and you look at maryville city hall and it's the clock tower and it's like <laughs> oh i was right you know we're very small we're very close-minded i had a friend that 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 uh helped me move and so we drove out here together with all my stuff in a u-haul and we get to maryville really really late we stay at the hotel out on the bypass and the next morning find the realtor and get into the apartment and we're driving around and he says to me, everybody that we drive past is flipping you off. And I said, seriously? So we start to see people flipping us off and so we're driving around Maryville flipping everybody else off and I get to campus and Ed Farquhar, the department chair at the time who hired me, I pull into the lot of the administration building and Ed says to me, how's your first day in Maryville? And I said, I don't understand. I said, everybody seems to be really unhappy about my being here. And he says, why? And I explained and he said, oh, that's the farmer's way. If they're just raising their index finger off the steering wheel. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know, just really close. There was somebody riding a tractor down the middle of 7th Street. I had never seen that. I just... <laughs> Boston's yep. not Maryville. <laughs> totally different, totally different perspective on life there. Yeah. The accent didn't help either. <laughs> it was a real thick when I got here. I was going to say, I. Yeah, you have no Boston I was gonna accent say, now. If, I've I, been you, here 20 years. Okay. Well, that helps. <laughs> <laughs> so, Northwest was your first professional teaching yep. position, and you've been here. This is, this is 20? This years? is uh, the start of my 20. 
let's see, I started on uh, August of 99, so I'll be finishing my 21st year. What do you, for someone who can't even think about staying five years or 10 years at a place, what are some of the advantages to being in a position for 20 years? I can't imagine leaving. Everybody I've spoken to that has left has said to me, I really thought the grass was greener. And it wasn't. You know, everything looked better. There are problems in, I mean, everybody's got problems in higher ed, one form or another. But the, 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 the best part about being here for 20 years is I see my past. I know my students back then. I can deal with the challenges for what students have evolved into now. You know, the students in 99 that didn't have cell phones, laptops weren't really ubiquitous because the technology was still too expensive. Even having a PC at home was a challenge in 99. And now you've got technology that's right in the palm of your hand, and the students are very, very different. So the teaching is very, very different. So that consistency has helped me to overcome those obstacles. Because you didn't have to worry about switching departments, changing like no. people, and changing personalities, yeah, processes. And, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, I'm very happy that I didn't. What's it like? I would think chemistry, being someone who's not scientifically minded. <laughs> I've never taken a biology class, never took a chemistry class. So I was Mr. Earth Science and Astronomy. In Travis college. is learning about science yes. now. <laughs> so, but I would think, you know, like I would if like when I was a student, if I would have had to sign up for gen chemistry, mm -hmm. your, your 100 level class, I would have been terrified. As was I when yeah. I was in high school. <laughs> but I imagine it's it's that's a much more challenging position for you to get those entry-level students to kind of buy into what you're doing and understand it than it is, you know, the ones who are majors who are in, they're in your fifth, sixth, seventh class deep. They, they have drank the Kool-Aid. They know what chemistry is and why it's awesome. But those entry kids are just scared to death that they're mm -hmm. not going to pass the first test. Mm -hmm. So, But you're also, it, it's, it's more challenging now because you're also asking them to think in a way that they haven't been asked to think in. I mean, the, 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 the current college student does not get encouraged to read critically because all of their information is provided in such small pulses that when you have to sit down and you have to read something for 10, 15 minutes, five times to understand it, it's very, very challenging for them. So when they walk in the door that first time, they've got the same expectation I had when I was in high school that this is going to be really hard and I'm not going to be able to do this. And then all you have to do is scaffold it in a way that small victories. I can accomplish this, and the next week I can accomplish something new, and then I can show how they tie together, and then I can build on that, and eventually that confidence starts to swell. But and then they've built a raft made out of all the little pieces. You remember that. <laughs> that is an interesting, just thinking about the reading aspect of it, people don't even read to the end of their emails. No. <laughs> right? Even in yeah. our jobs, people don't utilize that skill or use that use that focus or that working to put those pieces together? I think it's important for people who teach science. I think it's important for people to teach, but I mean, especially in the sciences where you ultimately want to be a professional scientist or a health professional. And when you get into those professional schools, somebody's going to hand you a 20-page published paper and they're going to say, this is what we do. Take a week, dissect it, come back and ask questions. And you can't say, oh, I didn't get past the first line because it was too long. <laughs> You know what I mean? So it's a challenge. Teaching, your teaching philosophy. How do you effectively teach or what do you think about teaching? What makes teaching successful? It's not supposed to be passive. And you, 
you can't allow the classroom to become pedantic. You can't allow it to be, I said it, you heard it, you wrote it down, therefore you understand it. It's just not acceptable with the way these students get through their high school experience. It's just not compatible. So I think what has to happen is, as a teacher, you have to recognize that what used to be a derogatory term in saying that every student is a snowflake is now the truth because every student is a snowflake. Every student brings a unique challenge to the classroom because every student has a different set of experiences that shaped who they are when they walk into your classroom, some good, some bad, and that baggage has to be contended with. So you have to be able to be flexible. You can't just say, well, I explained it. If you don't understand it, it's your problem. You must be flexible. You must be able to say to the student, okay, if that didn't work, let's try this. And if that didn't work, let's try this. And you don't get to say, well, I explained it three different ways. If you don't, that's, not, that's not what the current student needs. The current student needs to be able to have you say, I don't care what your challenges are. I will find a way to break through and get you to where I need you to be. Because they need that commitment from you that you're going to work as hard as you can to help them understand the if concept I'm not, that they need. If I'm not, I shouldn't be in the job. I think that's true for any of us that are here, not just professors, but any of us that work with students. It's like that's that's why we're here. You know, we're here to, to make them better in their successes or our successes. And if, if we don't see it that way, then this is not the environment where you need to be at. So I think that's a really powerful to hear that from a professor, someone who teaches that that's their philosophy, because that's, that's what we should all have or aspire to, I think. So careers in chemistry, other than teaching or pharmacy, chemist? Yeah. pharmacy? Yeah. I don't know. Well, you figure chemistry is the, is the study of everything around you in one form or another. And there's no way to really talk about chemistry without physics. And there's no way to talk about biology without chemistry. So in truth, chemistry is so ubiquitous that careers are really bountiful. There's lots and lots of different careers in the field. It just depends on what level of education you want to get. We have really good job placement in chemistry. And I, I think we had one student in my 20 years who made a choice not to practice chemistry when he left. And everybody else that has gotten a degree in chemistry has either gone to grad school or has gotten a job in chemistry within six months of graduating. Wow, that's and, impressive. I mean, we've got kids from Northwest who have PhDs from really good schools, really good graduate programs in chemistry. I was searching the other day for uh, chemistry jobs, and I was looking at things like forensic chemist. There's a lot of law enforcement types of, um, they cooperate with law enforcement to be to to contract out like chemistry services and stuff for that. I was actually really amazed at the the amount of jobs that were out there, different types of jobs for chemistry majors. Well, and then to make, you know, I would, the chemistry is such a vital part of manufacturing and scientific exploration and agriculture. And I would think there's so many adjacent industries that chemistry touches too, that really no matter what a student's interest, they could probably find a path. That's like communication, right? Everybody yeah. communicates, but then everything is chemistry. <laughs> everything is chemistry. It's nice to hear somebody say that. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I was a biology major, but I'm pretty sure half my coursework was chemistry it, because it was required as a biology major. I had to take all those chemistry courses. Biochemistry was my undergrad minor, so maybe that was part of it, but um, I did enjoy chemistry. <laughs> 
So we always like to ask for advice. So do you have any advice for students? Come, I know that's <laughs> no pressure. Just tell them how to be successful. But, you know, really, maybe someone who's who's thinking about they would like to do something in sciences, but they don't know what they want to do. You know, they were in that same situation you are. They, they, they get this. That it makes sense to them. They want to do it, but they don't know how to, how to move forward. I think interacting with the colleagues that I have that I relate to and the students that have come through and moved on and successfully and, and stay in my life and, and that I still have contact with, I think the, the scary thing is that anybody who's not in the field sees people who are in the field and they put them on this pedestal, like, wow, you know, you did that hard degree and you know all that information. And they fail to recognize that even the best of us have imposter syndrome to one form or another. We all feel like, yeah, I'm doing this, but I can't believe I'm doing this. And, you know, I can't believe that when I sign my name to a piece of paper, it actually carries some degree of authority. And, you know, I stand up in front of the class. But at the same time, we all started at that point. And we all needed somebody to just stand behind us and say, it's okay. You know, I need my students to recognize that failure is the single best thing for them. And I feel like today, students don't like that. They make one mistake and they feel like, oh, I, there's no reason to do this. I should just choose something else. And I need students to fail all the time. Because failing on a daily basis is really the only thing that got me through. Because I was fortunate enough to have somebody that said, you failed? Excellent. What'd you learn from it? <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, go fail again. Excellent. What'd you learn from it? That's, that's what I'm taking. Yes. You failed? Excellent. That's the proper response to you failed. That's really it. That really is the key, I think. And it's so hard to explain that. You know, I know just even my kids, you know, who are in elementary and high school, that failure is the best teacher. Like you learn so little from your successes because you just try and replicate that same thing. But when you fail, you have to adapt and change. You and actually so learn powerful. something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's hard to, hard to take that failure as a success when you have expectations. Sometimes I think as, a, as, a, as an educator, it's our job to create opportunities so that the failures are small, so that you can fail and recover from that failure in 30 seconds and then fix it. I, I worry that, you know, a lot of education is, is moving towards this, this big top-down picture where people are saying, okay, you have to meet these bars. And if you don't meet the bars, then you're not qualified and you don't get the degree. And students have these huge hurdles in front of them. And if they fail one, of course they walk away because there's no opportunity to learn. And, and if you don't have somebody standing behind you, then it becomes even harder. Yeah, I think that fear... That fear is what paralyzes you from trying again, right? The, the paralysis of, I don't want to take that risk. I want to step out there. I'm still crippled by it after all these years. In my, everything I do on my own, I'm still afraid of failing the very first time and mm -hmm. just packing up and walking away. Okay, maybe that hobby's not for me. No. <laughs> You're not going to become a podcaster? <laughs> I'm not thinking, no. One last question for you. What does it mean to you to be a Bearcat? In all my years of education, I have never been at an institution where I truly felt like everybody from the, the, the custodian that I meet every morning at the crack of dawn when I walk into the building to the president who greets me by name at the opening meeting. I've never felt like everybody was moving in the same direction, like everybody had the same goal. There's so many institutions that I've been at or been a part of where everybody's just out for themselves. 
And Northwest is the one place in these 20 years that I've been where from start to finish, I always felt like everybody had everybody's best interest in mind. Now, things may never not always go the right way, but the intent is always to move forward as a group. That's what I think being a Bearcat is. All right. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Toomey. No problem. Awesome. Appreciated it. All right. Well, that'll do it for another Behind the Bearcat, and we'll talk to you next time.